Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Maura Murray was born on May 4, 1982, in Hanson, Massachusetts. By the age of 21, she was 5'7 and 120 pounds. On February 9, 2004, in Haverhill, New Hampshire, Maura Murray crashed her car on Route 112. There has never been a confirmed sighting of Maura since that night. If you have any information on the whereabouts of Maura Murray, please contact the New Hampshire State Police. This is the Missing Maura Murray Podcast. Welcome to the Missing Maura Murray Podcast. For this episode, we have an interview with investigative journalist Clint Harding. I hope you enjoy it, and Lance and I will be there to bookend the episode. Thank you very much for listening, and please follow us on Twitter at MauraMurrayDoc, D-O-C. Welcome to the show, Investigator Clint Harding. Thank you, and thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it, and uh, like I was, uh, like like others have said, you know, you guys do a really good job, and uh, I, I look forward to this documentary coming out. I, I like the fact that you're kind of taking the time to try to kind of separate uh, facts from maybe just pure speculation and i think that's what this case needs is that, is that we just need to we need the factual information and we can come up with all kinds of theories off that factual information but as long as we're working with with real information you know that's that's what really this is about and that's honestly how i think this is, case is ever going to get solved uh, that's great thank you very much yeah if if uh, you were to read a, a certain reddit page um, you would believe that this podcast was all speculation, <laughs> but uh, we are doing our best to uh, to weed through the. Um... Oh, and it takes time. Oh, I know that it <laughs> takes time with this case in particular. Uh, you, you can never know this case enough. You know, you never know enough about this case to really to come up with that great conclusion. There's always something out there. Yeah. So, what's your background? My background, well, yeah, I don't know how far you want to go back there, but uh, I, I live in Centralia, Illinois. I'm from Southern Illinois. Uh, after high school, I joined the Air Force, uh, served for four years. I did two different tours in Kuwait, and I also went to uh, to a little island in the Caribbean 
uh, Caribbean Sea with 19 other Americans, and we spent four and a half months out there. Uh, that's probably where I grew up is, you know, getting that experience at that young of an age. Uh, so after my Air Force career, I went to Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, and I ended up uh, joining the journalism program my senior year. I uh, worked for the, the uh, college newspaper as a sports reporter, and from, from there just kind of went into journalism full-time. I uh, worked for 14 years as a, as a sports reporter. Then I became a sports editor of a newspaper and that's that's uh, went till 2014, and then I decided to do a complete career change and go back into Department of Defense work, and that's what I'm doing right now. Excellent, excellent. So, just want to uh, first thank you for the uh, for the service that you've done, no problem. Uh, your, your tours in in Kuwait and everything, and um, that's that's uh, that's really honorable. So, just want to put that out there. Um, yeah, and uh, when did you? Um, when did you discover the uh, the Moore Murray case? Well, technically, uh, I think I saw like a 2020 episode. I think that was what came first as far as television coverage of the case. At least, you know, unless you were local, I think they had a uh, more local show that came out earlier. But that was the first show. Really didn't didn't do much for me then. It was the the show on uh, the ID channel, the disappeared episode of Moore Murray. So whenever that debuted, uh, that was the first time i really got interested in this case and you know i saw fred murray on the tv screen and i just wanted to reach out and give him a hug to be honest with you because i i truly believe that he has uh complete real grief uh, it shows in that video you know that was several years after his daughter went missing but the grief is r- really still alive right there and i just felt really bad for him i re- really wanted to do something you know i didn't know what i could do but I really wanted to uh, learn about this case. Uh, and, and, you know, I think that's what really hooked me is, is I spent, spent a long time researching this case. I didn't go on message boards. I didn't, didn't do any kind of public speaking about this. I just, uh, just researched. And, and, you know, and it is that frustration of thinking that you're onto something and then maybe it leads down a rabbit hole. I think that's what kind of just kept you kept you going. It got you. It was like a challenge, you know. You just felt like something was taunting at you and saying you can't do anything. And and by golly, I, I like a challenge, so I wanted to keep at it and uh, and try to try to do my part to try to, to get some real information out there. And that's that's how I felt like I could help. I, I felt like you know I could uh, I could get real information by by researching and, and doing what I normally do anyway. Uh, and after that, you know, maybe I can help. Maybe I can help in some way. Right now, you were uh, just talking about Fred Murray, and the first thing that uh, occurred to you when you saw him on the disappeared episode was just his real grief. And you just, you know, you said you wanted to reach out and give him a hug, but there's a fairly large amount of people that have lost a lot of uh, trust in him, and uh, right. I was just wondering what you thought about that. Oh, I, th- I think it's uh, very legit uh, as far as that goes. There's a lot of uh, spin that's going on in this case, and it's not just family members. It's not just it's not just police. The police are going to be the police. They're going to say what they're going to say because you know they're just so limited in what they can t- tell the public anyway. Uh, there's just a lot of lot of spin, and a lot, and, you, and so it comes down to the research. You just really have to research and understand not just what people say, but what what is the context and why are they saying this and and that kind of thing. And and when it comes to when it comes to some of the things Fred has, has said, is there's definitely 
uh, room for questioning uh, out there. Uh, you know, so I won't, I won't go as far as to say that, you know, I think he's in on something. Uh, I don't believe that. I think he's, he really is legitimately did not know what happened or, uh, what happened tomorrow that night. Uh, you know, but I, you know, my theory does go, does go away from some of the more popular theories that you probably hear. Yeah, I do agree about the disappeared episode. And I believe that was when I started really focusing on this case too, but I, I did leave uh, feeling almost heartbroken for Fred Murray. Right. Yeah, and, you know, it depends on what you think of him, but you can watch that same episode and feel that this guy is lying or this guy is trying to make people feel bad for him, I feel like. Well, and, and, and anybody, anybody that's associated with this case, you kind of have to second guess what what they're really saying are they really mean is this really what what uh they believe i mean so it's a lot of characters in this case there it takes a long time to to go over them all but uh you know i I, what i kind of wanted to do is just i I don't know what you guys wanted out of me but i wanted to uh kind of just talk about some different aspects of this case and we can kind of look over the information and then i'll leave it up to the listeners to decide i'll leave it up to you guys to decide you know what you think yeah yeah and i love so it you can start at a number of different places with this case but i i think uh the, the place i would start if i was truly investigating this case would be uh october of 2003 that would be my starting date to look at this this case and that was a weekend it was columbus day weekend mara and fred uh went hiking and if my information is correct I truly believe they actually drove by the very same spot that Mara went missing in during that weekend hiking trip. And I Where did they to... uh, go hiking? Do you happen to know the trail? <clears throat> oh, yeah. I know. They went, uh, they went all over the place, actually. They started out in, in, in Stowe, Vermont. They uh, headed towards Burlington, Vermont. And then they went, made their way over to the White Mountains where they went to uh, Owls, let's see, Owls Head Mountain which is off the 112, Route 112. And they also went to uh, West Bond, and that is where Fred, I think he completed his 48th mountain that was 4,000 feet or higher. It's called the New Hampshire 48, or I don't know what the official name of it is, but there's 48 mountains in New Hampshire that uh, reach over 4,000 feet, and he was completing his final one that, that weekend. And at the top of the, I guess, the summit, Mara... Uh, reached in their knapsack and pulled out a, a ginger, ale, ginger ale to give to him, I guess, to signify the completion of his 48th mountain that weekend. So so that's where I would start, uh, not just the fact that they may have driven by that spot that weekend, but the uh, the other fact is that when, when Mara went missing, they found on her computer uh, directions, uh, let's see, Driving directions to the Burlington area, which is where they were in, in October. So we're talking, uh, what, four months prior? Right. So, she, so she's got driving directions to Burlington on her computer. And in her, in her uh, car, there was a note card with directions to Burlington. She also had, uh, called the Stowe, Vermont hotline, which maybe she didn't get a hold of anybody because I think that line wasn't working that weekend or that uh, day that she called. And then on top of that, where she ends up, she ends up in the White Mountains uh, on Route 112, 
uh, the, at the night that she went missing. So I think the directions, you know, I think there's a common ground there with the directions. Uh, the, you know, she's searching for a mountain area to go to. I think that proves that she didn't have a definite plan. Um, if she had a definite plan, I think she would have known, you know, hours before she went where she was going, Burlington and the White Mountains are in two different locations, even though they're, you know, you can travel the same road to get between both of them. So, uh, you know, you look at something like that, and I think that that, that says a lot, personally. So, Yeah, that's, that's interesting stuff. You said that she had a note card in her car? Note card in her car that her, her dad described, and her dad described it as uh, referring to Burlington. So the Burlington area. So where did you find that uh, that information? Those were in news articles that were done in the in the earlier days that Mara went missing. Uh, I may have one of those on hand. I'd have to try to dig that up there. But See, that's, uh, that's good, though, because what we're uh, looking was, for as like, you know, information that is as close to the time of the disappearance as possible. Exactly. And that was and that was found uh, inside her car after she went missing those that note card. It was returned to the family all their stuff in the car and that was one of the items that was recovered so so that's where it would start with me is in october just because you know you find those driving you find the directions on her computer the directions in her car and the fact where she ended up and they all kind of tie in together so you know it doesn't mean anything in particular but but that would be a starting point for me if i was investigating this case well, absolutely, and it doesn't mean anything if the person um, doesn't go missing. Exactly. exactly. You know what I mean? It, it means right. something now because you got to look at you got to look at all the events leading up to the disappearance to to try to solve it. Uh, I do think she was an avid hiker. I think it went beyond. You know, her, her family they talk about going annually to make trips, maybe to the White Mountains or or wherever. But I think it was a way way bigger. I don't know if they're just kind of downplaying her her love of hiking or not but i think her hiking oh, i don't I, I won't say the word obsession but i think she really enjoyed hiking a lot and it's something that she could I, I think she would spend her last moments in the white mountains if she could so you've been to the scene of the accident correct 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 uh, i think it was the summer of 2011 i uh Happened to go on a, a last-minute little vacation with my, my sister and her husband. They were going to the Foxwoods Casino, and I just decided I didn't want to tag along with them all weekend. So, And I knew about this case, and I realized I was going to be pretty close to everything. So I spent my whole weekend just, just uh, going through uh, everything that I could find that had to do with this case. I spent the night at the same hotel uh, Fred and Mara, or Fred actually stayed in Hadley, Massachusetts. I can't even say that right. But uh, after the hotel, after that night, I spent the next day at UMass. I went to uh, the dorm that Mara lived in. I went to the near the nearby dorm that she worked in. I ate at the the same brew pub that they ate at. Uh, I just really wanted to try to get a feel of of the area and and that kind of thing and then the the following day I I went up to New Hampshire. I took the route that I believe that she took just also to see how long it would take me and just kind of get a feel for things and and I ended up spending the night uh in Littleton uh which at the time had maybe had thought maybe had something to do with this case. So they found some human remains in a horse cemetery near Littleton and right. some, some people were saying, hey, this could be Laura Murray. So I, I wanted to get up there and 
and they were, I mean, it, it was ongoing at the time that I, I was there, but it ended up being, uh, it, obviously not her. So that's where I stayed. But when I stayed there, I, I drove to the accident location and, and spent some time there. So just so for the uh, listeners who are not familiar with the New England area, uh, Foxwoods is um, In not close to no. the Kratz. No, we, f- yeah. we flew into Bridgeport, Connecticut, and I drove from Bridgeport to uh, Hadley and, and UMass area, which really isn't that far. But then from UMass to uh, New Hampshire, it's, it's, it's a couple of hours. It's a nice little hike. Right, which which shows your dedication to this. I just wanted to point that out. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. So what did you learn from taking this trip? Oh, I learned a ton of things. <laughs> uh, the first thing I learned about was something I wasn't even planning on looking at at all, and that was the uh, – I'm sure you guys have probably even talked about the Patrick Vossi connect, possible connection to Mara Murray. Definitely. Uh, well, I stumbled on the exact location that – Patrick Vossi was found laying in the road, and I wasn't planning on that at all. And, and it was right after I left the dorms, right after I left where Mara was working. I was hungry. I was—I didn't know my way around yet the campus, but I knew the general location of the restaurant. So I got in my rental car and I made my first right. And it was like a couple, like a minute later, where I am, right at the location. I recognized it right away—the tri- triangle and Mattoon, the intersection. And it was like, it just made me think a little bit. It's like, God, I was always led to believe this happened way away from campus, way away from where Mara was working. So I never put any credit into the possibility that maybe she was involved in the hit and run. But that really kind of changed my, it, it, you know, I, I didn't, it made me look into it. Let's put it that way. So the accident site where Patrick Vassy was struck was really close to where Mora was working at the time. It was less than a mile. It was 0.9 miles. If you, I just did a Google search of that because, uh, yeah, it was 0.9 miles away. It was one one turn, basically. You turn off of Mass- Massachusetts Avenue onto uh, Pleasant, and Pleasant becomes uh, uh, Triangle, and then Triangle intersects into Mattoon all very quickly. And so, yeah. Did that area of road strike you as an easy area for a pedestrian to get hit or just? It really did. It really did. And, and, you know, again, and this is it's not a good comparison because I was there in the summertime. Mm -hmm. So you don't have active students there. But that spot was pretty active that night. It was uh, around five, six o'clock at night. A lot of people out walking and it was pretty busy in that in that specific area. So, yes, it definitely seems like a pretty good spot for me for somebody to get hit. Of course, I'm some idiot from uh, southern Illinois just driving around, so I, I'm probably a danger to everybody at that time, no matter where I was. So, <laughs> But uh, on the Vossi uh, hit, hit and run angle, I don't personally subscribe to it fully yet, but I, I will say that I've never been personally able to discount it, and it kind of it bothers me at times because stuff kind of fits nicely if she was involved in that hit and run uh it it explains things and and you know that that kind of bothers me yeah it it would seem to give a a solid motive for her to want to disappear well you know that but it explains why the father swoops into town uh, a day later with a bunch of money I, you know it's it's almost like i don't know it, it explains it pretty pretty well the father showed that the friday uh, after her breakdown at work which was the same night that that the hit and run occurred and same time frame uh 
they had a real bad storm, and Friday everything was canceled. Schools canceled, all their sporting events were canceled, and yet the next morning, Saturday morning, Fred's coming to town, and he's coming from at least two hour, two plus hours away. And I, I just always found that a little odd. And so he comes into town, and, and uh, you know, I don't know if they're trying to dump her car or not. Uh, the fact that they're going around telling everybody that the car's in super bad shape, you know, that could just be a story. They could have hid the car for, for the weekend and might also explain why she didn't have her car that night they went to the back to the dorms. You just said um, th- they were going around telling people that the car was in super bad shape. We've had other accounts of no one ever mentioning how bad of shape the car was in. Um, are you saying that they were they after the fact, after the disappearance, how bad the car was? Let, uh, me, or... be, let me be clear. We are totally in speculation mode right now, so let's be clear about that. And I, yeah, I don't, I don't know the full story on that. I know he in the public, uh, uh, in the media, it's it's made out that her car was in bad running shape. And, you know, this, my speculation on that is maybe it wasn't in such bad shape and maybe it was drivable, but maybe they didn't want it to be seen that weekend and they're trying to come up with some kind of cover story for why her car couldn't be available that weekend. Sure, sure. <clears throat> but that's just one little speculative uh, piece of information there. Which is all we're really left with. On that, yes. Uh, so uh, just to get back to the hit and run uh the hit and run occurs. Uh, he's found at twelve twenty exactly on on that intersection, or he's actually laying out. I think he's by the curb, laying flat out. Uh, Mara Murray was on her shift at the time, but she uh, did make a phone call from twelve oh seven a.m. to twelve fourteen a.m. That phone call, you will never find that phone call talked about anywhere. That's, you know, right there, that's a red flag to me. I don't know, and it doesn't necessarily have to do with Patrit Vossi hit and run. It's just a red flag that nobody ever has ever talked about the phone call that she made from 12.07 a.m. to 12.14 a.m. when And Patrit Vossi's hit at 12.20. So you got uh, a, a time frame there that kind of matches up, and, you know, you think somebody, maybe they're on a break or something, they might run run right to their cell phone. So mm-hmm. This is just, her cell phone records. Her cell phone rare. I'm looking at it right now, uh, and it was two. It was a phone call between her and her boyfriend from 12:07 a.m. to 12:14 a.m. Now we hear about the phone call that Mara and her sister had between 10:10 and 10:38 p.m., but we know for a fact that Mara didn't break down at work until around one. So obviously, a 10:10 to 10:38 phone call to try to link that to a 1 a.m. 12:45 a.m. breakdown is is a big stretch for anybody. So let me just uh, clarify a little bit here. So Maura, that night of the acts of the Petri Vassi accident, she spoke with her sister for about a half an hour. 10, uh, 10 to 10.38. Okay. And then she went on break. And during I know. The... I do not know that she went. I'm speculating that she went on break. That oh. part I'm speculating. Oh, okay. But because she had made a, call, a different phone call to her boyfriend. At 12.07 to 12.14. And Petrit Vassi was found in the road at 12.20. Exactly, 0.9 miles away, yes. And what time was he hit? Well, they they speculate. I mean, we just have to, to yeah. guess because he was found at 1220, but who, who knows how long it took for that to be reported and to, okay. for people to respond. The police were on scene and saw him at 1220 a.m. 
Okay, so it is reasonable, though, to assume that if she was on her break when she made the call to Billy, that it could have come after she hit Patrice. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Okay. Just or or during or during the phone right. call. Right. Exactly. Okay. I just wanted to clarify. That's really interesting. And I want to touch on one more point on on the bossy uh, angle. Sure. Okay. Because a lot of people have brought this up. The fact that you know what what about the investigation into that? Uh, bottom line is there was never an investigation done on on that. It was never determined if he was hit by a car or if he maybe had been playing around and he was car surfing and he fell. It was two months after uh, his accident. He was in a coma for two months. He finally came to, and then, and then the police were trying to get some information out of him. So we're talking two months after the fact. So with no information, no real investigation going on, uh, you know, they're not, I mean, there's there's nothing you know. Mara Murray, if she was involved, she wouldn't know that though. She, would she think, wouldn't know that there was any investigation, right? Right. And the day that she went missing was the day that the school newspaper ran with the story of the hit and run. But but uh, you know, again, that doesn't mean that doesn't that doesn't tire tire to it or anything. Right. But but the day that she went missing, the story came out about the hit and run in the school newspaper. And in fairness, I think a. Uh, the town, the town newspaper put out a story about the hit and run like the morning after. So, so I just so, don't want to make it sound like that she she bolted the minute the story hit or anything like that. Well, I had something I wanted to read to you guys, and I um I can't find it. It was a quote from uh, Vossi's mom uh, that she had made to a newspaper talking about how uh, Patrice Vossi the investigation uh, was never happened basically. Uh, here it is right here. Her direct quote is, he doesn't know what happened and nobody investigated for him. And that's from uh, Mrs. Vossi, and her uh, actual name is Aphrodite. Aphrodite Vossi. But we do know which way Patrice would have been walking, right? He was coming from a friend's house. That is known. And they've talked to the fr- I know they have talked to the friend. Uh, this is all like months later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, so yeah, they, I'm sure they have a good idea of where he was when he, when he, when he was struck. Okay. So it uh, probably, I, I'm just trying to think, I wonder if, if Mora may, you know, had made that turn from her work onto the street where Vassie was hit, if he would have been on the left side of the road, walking back towards school, or if he would have been on the right side of the road. I th- well, let's see. I think he would have been on her pa- uh, passenger side, walking towards her driver's side. Okay. All his injuries were to one side of his body, and, and that's something. If you're car surfing and you, uh, I guess, if you were to make a nice little tumble, I don't think your injuries would be that consistent. So that's another reason why the car surfing angle doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But it was something they just, you know, they didn't know. They didn't know what happened to him. And really, to this day, they don't know what happened to him. He does not want to know uh, if Mara Murray was involved. He doesn't want to know who hit him. Really? Yes, and he's said that uh, he's he uh, he's talked a few times on message boards, and not a lot, but uh, when he has, he's made it very clear he does not want to know what happened. He wants to put that part of his life completely behind him. That's really interesting. I, I can I can see where he would be coming from with that. Yeah. What nationality is Vassy? Mm, that's a good question. I uh, that I do not know. I do not I'm know. Just... I have not I have not looked that deep into into this really. Yeah, I'm just I'm just thinking about 
the the time frame of where the country was at in 2004 and no investigation on this guy you know i'm wondering if it was someone named you know like like bob smith like from you know middle america like would that would they have actually like put forth a, a better investigation into that's this been said a lot on on message boards and, and the like so yeah i mean that thought is definitely something that people have have brought up but you know in fairness the guy's in a coma f- for two months so really you can't get to the bottom of anything until you can he can probably speak for himself and maybe they thought when he came out he'd be able to tell him exactly what happened but wasn't the case so yeah, I didn't want. To, I don't want to spend all you know all time on that because that's just she could very well have not had anything to do with with what happened to Mr. Vossi. It's just a very yeah. odd coincidence, like a lot of things in this case. Yeah. Right, and and like a lot of things, once you start talking about one fact that happened that could have been connected to this, you just like you start rolling with everything, you know? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of speculation and a lot of things are coincidence. But at some point, one of these coincidences must not be a coincidence, right? Ah, uh, yeah, you'd think. And boy, and, and you know what? That uh, I think that has kind of driven me. You know, you hear stuff and, and it sounds great and it sounds like you're going to really uncover something and then the next thing you know, you're back to square one. So right. uh, what are you going to do? But uh, what was the strangest thing that you uncovered during your trip? During my trip, uh, or the most interesting thing? Well, you know, just interesting for me was was just to be able to see everything. You know, you hear about it, you read about it, and just to be able to see things for yourself. Uh, I had, I'm in my mind, the picture that I had made about the case from reading about it all these years was was a lot different when you're actually there seeing it mm-hmm. seeing things like the the dorm locations uh melville and kennedy i mean you walk out of the melville front door and you're f- literally steps away from kennedy and and all along i had i had envisioned you know the super i envisioned the supervisor kind of carrying mara halfway across campus and this big dramatic scene and re- really it's just you walk out one door and you're right at the next door things of that nature uh well let, let's talk about mara's old supervisor Okay. So you interviewed her, and uh, we read your email on the air. I believe it was episode three, our questions and comments episode. What feeling did you get from her? I felt that there's a lot of uh, built-up guilt in her. Uh, I, I think she was really haunts her. This case really haunts her. And, you know, they were friends. I wouldn't call them great friends. You know, that, But I think it was beyond a little work. I think they were, you know, friends. But I think it just haunts her because she saw somebody that kind of even reminded her of herself a little in a little ways with some of the the uh, issues that Mara was was facing maybe or and I just kind of felt like she always felt like maybe she should have done a little bit more that, that night that same night there because she she saw she saw some she saw somebody in crisis mode and she really tried to get Mara to go to go see a counselor that night she didn't want to wait she wanted to send Mara right to a crisis counselor right from her shift and uh and you know she ended up taking mara back to her dorm and and uh, she wanted to go and spend some time with mara didn't want to leave her alone but mara kind of told a little fib said that she had a roommate and that she'd be okay so that was really the last that the supervisor uh ever heard from mara and, and really didn't hear much else until until everybody else heard about her going missing so 
So take us back to um, when you were talking to uh, the supervisor. It's Karen Mayotte, right? Yes, correct. Yeah, take us back to when you talked to uh, Karen through when um, when she first discovers that Mora was uh, under some sort of distress. Correct. Uh, you know, it's just the whole thing's just bizarre. Uh, she comes in. Uh, she gets notified that somebody that Mara's upset, so she goes to respond. She walks into the uh, front desk area. Mara's sitting at the desk. She walks right up to Mara. I mean, like face to face, like just a one little desk separating the two. And she starts to talk to Mara, but Mara's Mara's looking straight past her, not responding to her, not saying a word. She's not crying at this point. She's just staring ahead. And so the supervisor kind of keeps prodding and trying to find out what's wrong, and Mara just just not saying nothing. Finally, at some point, Mara breaks down and starts crying just uncontrollably, and and the supervisor, you know, is obviously trying to console her. And at the same time, you have uh, you have students that are coming in. They're wanting to get into the dorm, and, and Mara's just not, she's just not there. And, you know, it's just, the supervisor really doesn't, doesn't know what to do, but she, she realizes that Mara's just not in a place to, to be working, that's for sure. So she actually, you know, relieves Mara, tells Mara, you know, you, you can, you're done. You can uh, pack your stuff and go home. And Mara's, Mara's not getting up. Mara's just sitting there, and she's back to staring again. And the supervisor, uh, I, I think the supervisor finally just kind of took the bull by the horns and went up and started packing Mara's stuff for her and then had to actually kind of walk towards the door with Mara's stuff to kind of kind of alert to her that, hey, it's time to go. And so that's when Mara got up, and, and the supervisor helped her out of the dorm, and, and uh, they walked over to Kennedy, walked inside, and, and the supervisor tried to get Mara to let her come up to her room with her, and, and Mara said that she'd be okay, and that's where they parted. Based on the feeling you get from Karen, does it feel like – she believed Mara was in real distress or that she was putting on an act to get out of work? Absolutely not an act. Absolutely not an act. And, yeah, real distress. And and like I said, I think Karen, you know, real, really wishes that she would have just kind of kind of forced herself to take more action than what ha- would actually happen. But, you know, you can't blame Playing the supervisor in that situation at all. I mean, but the but the story, you know, is that maybe Mara was just trying to get out of work or maybe something like that. And I, you know, I, that's one hell of an acting job. You know, not, not just to do it when the supervisor arrives, but then to keep on going with the act even after you've already been released. Right. It's just a just a little much for me to believe. Yeah, I've faked my way out of school before for being sick, and uh, I kept it up all day and night. <laughs> Did you? Let's be clear that you went to school for acting. <laughs> that is true as well. <laughs> well, and she, and again, she's released. There's really no, at that point. I mean, I don't mean she just has to put a smile on her face and pack up her stuff and run out of the building. But you know, she's released and she's just stuck there. And, and I, you know, I, I understand that college kids. I was one one of them at one time in my life. You know, everything is a little more dramatic. Everything seems a little more tragic to a college kid, but this doesn't sound like a typical boyfriend-girlfriend spat or something like that. This sounds like something really traumatic happened, uh, whether it was by a phone call, whether it was, you know, who knows. Right. And we don't know. We don't know the answer to what caused her to, to be upset like that. Exactly. All we know is that, you know, like you said, Tim, we 
you know, we've all done things like that where we fake being sick and, you know, we've gotten out of situations, but I feel, I feel like I, I've said this numerous times during our podcast, we don't go missing after, so it's not a big deal. So it's a big deal because these are the things that, that happened to her. The, these are the way, this is the way she reacted to, to, you know, to whatever situation comes her way and then she goes missing. So that's why we're, you know, we're looking into all these things. What did Karen say about the phone call? Uh, she, uh, she, uh, did not say anything directly about a phone call. She did it. She did do a police statement after Mara had gone missing. And in that statement, uh, she had referred to the fact that Mara had pointed down to her cell phone and, and blurted out the words, my sister, when uh, supervisor kept prodding her and, and I guess Mara was given an answer. So that's what she wrote in the police statement that Mara said, my sister. And I, and you know, after that, uh, I know the police were highly interested in trying to track down whoever called Mara that night. And uh, they ended up coming out saying in the, in the press that basically they found the phone call that upset Mara that night. She had talked to her sister. Well, that's, that phone call was at 10 o'clock at night, and her being upset was closer to 1 in the morning. So so that's uh, they're, they're taking a nice leap of faith there going with that phone call as being the, being the uh, source of Mara becoming upset just based off of her words, my sister, which really could mean anything. But like I said, and, and, the, and the, here's, you know, we get into the spin portion of this, is the fact that the family, they'll go on, on uh, in the newspapers back then, they'll go, they'll go all on about how the police keep referring to this phone call that upset Mara by Mara's sister, but nobody talks about the 12 o'clock phone call that was much closer in line to the time that Mara became upset. And it's kind of odd that, that you would keep mentioning this 10 o'clock phone call when you as a family person know for a fact that that's not the phone call that upset Mara. But yet the public doesn't know that. The public doesn't have access to her phone records, but yet you're going to you're gonna keep on saying, bringing up that, that 10 o'clock phone call like it's, like it's, you know, and keep bringing the fact that the police keep alerting on that. And the police maybe really do believe that that phone call had something to do with something, but the evidence is there. Her phone records are clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, she talked to at 10 o'clock and she talked again at 12 o'clock and there was no phone calls in between that those two has her sister ever come out and given the details of the phone call that happened in that 10 o'clock hour said that they regularly talk on the phone at night it, this was not anything out of the ordinary at all and they were just talking about normal relationship stuff and nothing out of the abnormal that she remembers would be anything that would trigger Mara to be in the kind of state that she was in and which sister was this, just so that we're clear? Kathleen. This gotcha. is the old, older sister. So what do you know about the night of the accident? I mean, we all kind of have heard the uh, versions of events, so I don't really want to just keep pouring over that. But uh, Mara, Mara wrecked her car. Uh, it was sometime around 7.20 p.m. at, at night. Uh, it was in... It was right around a sharp curve on Route 112 there, right past a antique store that... Uh, the uh, the neighbors that uh, first called nine one they they nine one one they owned the antique store that Mara drove past right before she uh, wrecked out she hit us into a snowbank and got her car lodged in there and her car was I guess damaged uh, at the accident site uh, what I wanted to really kind of talk on is something that doesn't get mentioned a whole lot is that you know they found alcohol. 
they found a, a, a smash bottle or a smash box of Franzia wine in the back seat. Uh, they also found Tylenol PM in her car, and I don't I don't know if many people have have uh, heard that. No, and I don't and I don't know. You know, I don't want again. She could just take Tylenol PM with her everywhere she goes, and that's fine. And everybody, you know, a lot of people take Tylenol. It's not a doesn't mean anything. Well, it but, does. It, it does mean a few, a, a couple of different things. I think it means she was either she had trouble sleeping or she had uh, she had pain and enjoyed uh, the buzz of these during her sober and awake hours. Okay, I do know for a fact that uh, police did use this. They used a lot of things, but they used the Tylenol PM and the and the alcohol as a way to to uh, point towards the fact that she may have been there to harm herself. Yeah. So oh. that's that. That's one uh, one angle, definitely. Oh yeah, you pop two of those and have a, uh, a a glass of red wine and drive on a windy road. I, I dare you to come out without hitting a snowbank or a guardrail. Yeah, that's interesting because um, when it's just because what everybody has heard is that it's it's alcohol that was purchased at a liquor store and it seems like alcohol that was purchased to be part of um you know like a gathering of a party or something. Thing. But when you add in uh, those Tylenol PM in there, yeah, it does put another uh, layer on this whole thing, which is, you know, again, like speculating. It's 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 you're going to drink a bunch of alcohol and you're going to pop a bunch of Tylenol PMs and and just let it let it go, you know. Well, even if she right. wasn't taking the Tylenol PM then, say that she just took it to sleep, you know. Yeah, we don't know if she took any or right. nothing like that. We just but, know that she did pack that with, with the stuff that she brought. But I've taken Tylenol PM, and I have some in my cabinet now, but I, I only use it when I'm having trouble sleeping. So, right. But that also tells me something about the person who's taking it. If I have trouble sleeping, then that means I'm stressed out or something a little different is going on in my life. You know, I, I may have insomnia. Insomnia isn't a normal condition that people who are, you know, happy people, non-stressed people have. Mm. Very rarely, I'll say, would, would have that. And she was she was a very good athlete. Uh, and at one time, uh, I think she, uh, I know family spokespeople have tried to definitely uh, speak out about this. And they've said that she had a reoccurring knee injury and she was taking those the Tylenol PM to kind of help that out, maybe maybe to sleep, for instance, at nighttime. So, you know, but she hadn't run competitively in, in uh, at least a year or more at the time of her accident. So, I, you know, I don't know. I could see it. No, it could be completely innocent. I just wanted right. to point out. I just wanted, I want to make sure that's out there, though, because that's important, I think. Yeah. 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 So, and then you have the bus driver uh, who came across Mara. Uh, the first thing that, or one of the first things that he did, as I understand, is he had to kind of get on her a little bit because she was sitting in the sitting in the road with her car partially sticking in. She didn't have any lights on at all. Didn't have flashers on. Nothing. And this is a dark car we're talking about. Uh, at nighttime, as anybody could have came and came uh, around that corner and hit her, hit her again. And so she was sitting in her car. Uh, I don't I have no idea what she was up to. But she didn't have any lights on. She was, doesn't sound like she was trying to bring attention to herself. And he he just kind of stumbled upon her and and uh, and confronted her. So how far behind Mora do you think Butch was in his bus when she crashed? So she crashes and he shows up. Was he um, far enough, say, where he didn't see the taillights? I can only guess. I'm going to say it's around seven thirty, seven thirty-five in that range. 
is when he arrived. Uh, we do know for a fact that he attempted to call 911 himself around 740. We know for a fact that the first 911 call came at 727. So between 727 and 740, he had his full interaction with her and made it to his house and called 911. So his first attempt to call 911 did not work. So he actually had to have the Hanover dispatch uh, get in touch with the Grafton County dispatch to get his 911 call through the second time, and that came through at 7:43 p.m. Was he calling from a cell phone or his home phone? I think it was his. I think he yelled from his bus for his either wife or girlfriend. That's never been established to me if it was his wife or his girlfriend to uh, call. So I think she called the first time, and then I think he kind of, kind of piggyback got on got on the got on it helped his his wife or girl or uh, girlfriend call and give the information out so what do you say to the people who believe that butch may have been involved just and, yeah yeah timeline just doesn't doesn't add up for that i mean the, you know the guy he's an older guy and just not enough time i mean my god he the only thing he could have done was to convince her to come with him to his house hide her out until everybody left from the, from that uh accident location that night and then do something afterwards and he lived in a house with his wife slash girlfriend and his mother and both of them his mother worked for the police department at one time i think she was a nurse at at the time this happened uh his his wife was a bus driver he was a bus driver you know this is somebody there's no way no possible way he was involved in anything sinister but i wanted to really touch on this because uh this is not said a lot uh the fact that uh, that night there was kind of an investigation that took place uh and it involved a lot of people and i don't think that gets gets put out there a lot because of the way the news reports came out about that that night uh there was a volunteer fire in or monthly meeting going on around that the accident location and so they all heard the call go out on the the radio and so we're talking uh, i think it was 12 people went just from just from that to the accident location so you had this whole volunteer fireman force you had uh, emergency personnel respond i think there was two guys uh, from like ems that responded you had the lead investigator he enlisted the help of the bus driver and the westmans i think they went to the uh, antique store the weathered barn and i think they opened that up to see if maybe somehow she had gotten into there and so you had a ton of people out looking that night for, for Mara, just didn't find her. Do you happen to know if the police searched the houses in the area? The main guy, that, the first responder that showed up, he was on scene uh, well past everybody else. He, he cleared the scene at 9.26 p.m. So that's, he was on scene after arriving at 7.29, so that's almost two full hours. So I would imagine that that included going house to house in, in that area and, and trying to talk to people so he was on scene at least a half hour after the car was already towed so i don't know what else he'd be doing during that time yeah talking to neighbors or possibly going to houses that's very interesting and then we have the rag in the tailpipe and and uh it's it's been it's been reported that the actual the, the same officer that first responded is the guy that found the rag in the tailpipe so then that gets into the whole you know situation what 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 Fred said, and does that add up? What Fred said about you know, warning his daughter that if her car's smoking, to stick a rag in the tailpipe to kind of cover that up, and and all that stuff. And and you know, I, I have never really been able to to believe that 
account. I, I, you know, just does, something about that just doesn't add up. And so when I try to put everything into context, and I'm going back to actual 911 logs uh, the next day, when Fred is 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 trying desperately to get a hold of this first responding officer because he has very important information he wants to tell him concerning his daughter. Uh, that information ends up being that it, that uh, he thinks his daughter went to the White Mountains to do personal harm to herself, and that's that's what the lead investigator of the case said was the first words out of Fred's mouth. So, so knowing that and knowing that the investigators are starting to are trying to put a picture of who Mara was, uh, they think that she came to their area to do harm to herself. So when Fred actually gets to the area, they're going to start confronting him on on this kind of stuff and. That's personally what I think happened is I think they mentioned this rag in the tailpipe and, and Fred had to come up with a quick answer for that because it didn't take Fred long to realize that, that the suicide angle is, 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 is bad because police aren't going to pursue that like they would have missing an actual uh, person of a crime, a crime that occurred that night. You know, if you have a person that goes walks away into the mountains that, and they're an adult and they did it on their own free will, you're not going to get the kind of uh, investigation that you would get if it was somebody that met up with foul play. So Fred tells the police that he thinks that Mora went into the woods to kill herself. How how long between that and when he said she was probably abducted by some local dirtbag? I don't personally have never talked to Fred, so I do not know. Uh, do not I can't go by his own word which obviously would be very valuable to hear him talk about some of this stuff. But we can go by what he said in, in accounts and newspaper accounts. And, and in the days after Mara went missing, the, some of the things that he was directly quoted as saying is, is that uh, I, don't, I don't know what the matter is or what trouble you think you might be in, but this isn't anything we can't solve. It's me. You can tell me. We'll work it out until we solve it. And that was a direct quote from him directly speaking to his daughter after she had gone missing. Okay, but two weeks later, he's completely changed his terms. And he said in one article, we should think of this in terms of a criminal investigation. It sounds like it would be the key to expanding it. Let's grab the bull by the horns and call this foul play. And ever since then, he's pretty much stuck with a, a theory of a local dirt bag grabbing grabbing Mara. So what happened in that time to change his point of view? Yeah, and then we can always speculate. Right. But I, but but the, his statements are, are there. I mean, it's you know, it's what he said. It's Yeah. His his pleas early on were directly tomorrow. They weren't to a kidnapper. They yeah. were directly tomorrow. It's very and interesting then, and, and contradictory almost. Right, exactly. It's contradictory because he's always criticized the local law enforcement, correct? Right, and that, I mean, yeah. After, and you know, I'll be honest. I'll, you probably already know my theory because I haven't. Been, I've been trying to kind of stay away from it, but I think that Mara went to the White Mountains to do personal harm to herself. That's my theory. Uh, it's based on a lot of years of research, but it doesn't mean it's true. It doesn't mean it's true at all. So, but that is my theory. But anyway, what I'm getting at is, I think Fred Murray knew how urgent it was the minute he found out where Mara was. Once, once he found out she was in the same area that they were in just a couple months earlier, and I think he knew that 
after spending that weekend with her at campus that she wasn't in the best mental state at the time. She just had her breakdown at work, and who knows what all went on that weekend. Uh, I think he knew that they they better find her within the next 24 to 48 hours or it's going to be too late. And that's why he changed his story, you think? Yeah, as I think after about – after a very short amount of time, I think he knew she was no longer alive. And then it's like, you know, you're going to let your, you're going to let all this stuff come out about your, your daughter, or you just want to, you know, I, I think he just at that point just wanted to focus on how bad of a job the police did as far as not finding her in time. You know, that's just a personal opinion right there. That's not fact. I mean, they can't count that down as fact or anything, but that's my opinion. Yeah. Of this. It's it's really interesting because to the to the people who believe that Fred aided Mora in getting away or in, in disappearing and maybe gave, gave her that $4,000, Fred wouldn't have wanted the police to search that hard. So he wouldn't have changed his story, right? Yeah. I, yeah. I don't think you – and he's also getting trying to get the FBI involved. He's trying to – go down and beat down on the doors of legislators and try to get he's trying to get you know everything he can about the case and and you know i think if if you really were covering up something that uh, you, you know you still gotta i guess you'd still have to put on some kind of an act but but yeah he, he's definitely going the extra mile if this is all an act and he was involved in her disappearance in some way right and wasn't he um on private property in the weeks and months after her disappearance and and people had called the police and and they came out and wasn't he wasn't wasn't he like kind of wandering or like searching through oh he come that he area came back, he came back all the time he had a came back came back right to that right to that scene right he had a contracting job. He was, I think, he was a radiologist. Uh, he had a contracting job in Connecticut that went on for several years, and so he'd come back. I think it was every other weekend. Uh, I'm not 100 percent sure on that, but he would come back and he would be right right around the area where her car went missing. He would do his own little searches there, and and finally, at some point, he brought in some investigators, and that's when you heard about. Uh, the, the rusty knife and the A-frame house and all this other stuff that came out about uh, finding evidence. And that was all done by him and his investigators. So thank you very much to Clint Harding for that interview. That was pretty interesting stuff, huh, Lance? Yeah, seriously. He provided a lot of information that comes from the early part of this investigation, which is what we're looking for. You know, he's talking about, um, in detail, he's talking about the phone call, phone calls that Maura got the night that she um, was escorted back to her dorm uh, by Karen Mayotte. I thought that was really interesting. I thought it was really interesting that he took the trip up there and what he has in his head, this like picture of um, her supervisor guiding her back, like holding her and guiding her back to her dorm, which is the, uh, that's the picture that we've all kind of got in our heads about this is that she walks her back and, you know, guides her to her room and, you know, tucks her in and everything. Yeah, uh, and it's literally like next door. It's like a couple of steps. So yeah, he really put things into perspective there for me with um, with the visual. Yeah, and as far as the some of the speculation we were doing, trying to get into some of the details of the Patrice Vassy accident and everything, we 
you know, we're just trying to explore all avenues with this, all possibilities. I mean, we don't know what happened. We, we don't have, we're not trying to push any theories. We're just uh, trying to explore all likely scenarios. Right. And we wouldn't be exploring this scenario if the Petrie Vassy accident happened the night before. Right. It and I- happened in a time frame that is pretty ideal for what went down with Mora that night. If you believe that Mora struck Patreet Vassy, then you likely should believe that Billy Roush knows that. Exactly. Based on Mora's reaction after, based on the fact that she had her cell phone with her, and based on the fact that that call was actually made, and the fact that Patreet was hit during that time. So if you do believe that, yeah, absolutely. No matter what your theory is, this interview just shook <laughs> shook it all up. It completely shook it all up for me because I'm listening to this guy, Clint, and he's he's like, you know, I'm listening to a real guy with, you know, the accent, and, and he doesn't sound like he's got any ulterior motive there, right? I don't think so. No agenda. You know, he went into this because... It's in him to find truth in things. Yeah, he's a he's a real truth seeker. And we'll have Clint back on to talk more about the A-frame house and the rusty knife that he mentioned. Thank you very much for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.